Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I've got a great conversation with Dr. Joe Crawler about his research into the execution of Admiral John Bing. This is episode 74 of Untenured Tracks. Well, the book is, uh, is about this uh, red flag in history, um, British history at that, um, where an admiral was executed uh, in 1757 by his own government. Um, so, I mean, if we put that in context, um, imagine Colin Powell um, being put on trial, found guilty, and then executed. You know, uh, it's something hard to fathom. And even if we go back into history and we look at generals and we look at admirals and we look to see, you know, have any of them been executed since the early modern era, it's exceedingly rare. Um, so knowing that, um, I, I always tease folks with, well, what did this admiral do to, you know, deserve um, what happened to him? Mm-hmm. Um and and the answer is uh, is just as perplexing. Um, he was found guilty of not doing his utmost, and uh, that's the technicality that they pinned upon uh, Admiral John Bing. And uh, based on on that technicality, um, they. Um, they shot him uh, by firing squad aboard the HMS Monarch, which in itself is kind of uh, ironic since the Monarch was given an opportunity, uh, George II, uh, the Monarch was given an opportunity to uh, to give Admiral Bing clemency, and he chose not to. So, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a red flag, and I had to investigate. <laughs> Yeah. So my my first reaction is, uh, uh, who among us is not guilty of doing his utmost? <laughs> and, and and that's just it. You know, I, sometimes I ask students to raise their hands. How many have ever been blamed for something they did not do? Mm. You know, and of course, all the hands are going to go nope. sky high. Um, and I'm like, okay, so. What was some of the fallout of that? You know, well, I got maybe grounded, um, or uh, I couldn't go to couldn't go to prom, or but but none of you lost your life, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so you, you know, there's something going on um, that's quite exceptional. And and the Bing name, Admiral John Bing, was a big name back in the mid 18th century, and there's still a Viscount Torrington which has a Bing in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they're still part of the House of Lords. They're still uh, very much a part of um, British nobility or aristocracy. Um, John Bing's father was George Bing, the first Viscount of Torrington. Um, and he had an amazing career. Uh, John Bing's brother was also Lord of the Admiralty, treasurer of the Navy uh, at one point. Uh, John Bing himself was governor of Newfoundland at one point um, and did a remarkable job during the War of Austrian Secession um, and then was part of a preemptive strike in 1755 against French Maritime and did a remarkable job there. And yet within, you know, uh, gosh, 18 months, uh, he, he lays dead on <laughs> executed for something that he didn't really do. Um, and so that's what the book is looking to not just explain what happened, but to look at the culture of Britain at the time, mm-hmm. uh, culturally and socially, what was going on uh, that allowed such a thing to happen. Basically what the book is about. So, so what was he, what was he accused of? I mean, 
Like, what is what does that mean? Guilty of not doing his his utmost. So, um, in the very beginning of the Seven Years' War, mm-hmm. um, before Britain even declared war against France, um, Bing was sent to the Mediterranean to protect an island called mm-hmm. Menorca. And Menorca is part of a, uh, the Balearic Island system off of Spain, maybe 270 miles or so. And at the time, it was a British possession, mm-hmm. uh, just like Gibraltar was a British possession. And um, I think one of the fun facts is that it was supposed to be John, Admiral John Bing's father was the one who set up Menorca as a Navy port. Mm-hmm. And so here we have now John Bing, who's sent to save it um, as tensions between France and uh, Britain kind of begin to escalate mm-hmm. in India, in North America, in the Caribbean, and around the world. And someone goes, oh, the Mediterranean, go, go, go. <laughs> um, and so John Bing is sent to save this island, but by the time he gets to Gibraltar, um, the island had already been invaded by 15,000 troops. Wow. Um, and 15,000 French troops then begin a march toward uh, this castle called St. Philip's, and it's a garrison, it's a fortification, and it's on the easternmost end of the island over a harbor called Port Mahon. That island is gone, except for this little toehold, this garrison. Um, And when he arrives at Gibraltar, he was supposed to pick up a regiment of Marines and take those Marines with him and give them to the garrison, except the Gibraltar commander with other army personnel and army personnel that were traveling with Bing. And we're talking some big names here, uh, voted not to give those Marines to John Bing. Um, But nonetheless, he sails with a fleet that's suspect, short, some 800 men. Um, He's actually using um, Lord Robert Birdie's fusiliers uh, as sailors, so he would have at least enough men to maintain his ships. And he arrives off of this Menorca, Port Mayen, St. Philip's fortification castle, the garrison, on, I think it was uh, um, May 19th. And he tries to open up communications with the garrison. Uh, Meanwhile, everybody notices that there's French um, batteries on both sides of the entrance to the harbor. So really, it's a very difficult thing for him to do to open up communications while this fort is under siege. He attempts it, though. Um, but that's when the French fleet showed up. And uh, Bing now has a decision to make. Do I attack this French fleet, or do I actually surrender the 800 fusiliers to this garrison and hope it holds out? If I do that, I am not going to have enough men to fight this French fleet. So he... um, essentially decides that the best thing to do is fight the French fleet, <laughs> which he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next day, there's a four-and-a-half-hour battle. Um, it's pretty much a draw. No ships are sunk on either side, but there's heavy damage to a couple of ships on the French side, heavy damage to some of his ships on his side. He loses 42 men and, and a couple of captains, Um, The same, pretty much the same on the French side. Um, And at nightfall, it's the French who pull full sail and leave the fight. Mm -hmm. So Bing has another decision to make. What do I do? Uh, He kind of sticks around for four days um, waiting for the French fleet to come back. In the meantime, he converted uh, a frigate to a hospital ship. He didn't have one. Um, He doesn't have any tenders, so he's trying to make repairs at sea as best he can. Um, And then he calls a war council. The same army guys that 
were with him before at Gibraltar that said, no, we can't give you any Marines, are with him still. And uh, they decide, well, we better go back to Gibraltar. It's the only serviceable Navy port around. So they go back. And um, he begins to repair his fleet. He finds that there's five more additional ships showed up finally. Uh, he has his reinforcements. He's ready. He's writing letters back. Um, I'm, I'm ready to go out. I'm ready to to, to re-engage the French fleet. Um, and that's the, the day before he's ready to leave, um, a letter comes back for his, his recall and that of uh, a number of other officers. So he's been recalled. Hmm. Um, he's perplexed. He, you know, his second-in-command was recalled. A couple other... Some army guys at the Gibraltar were recalled. Um, he comes back to England, Portsmouth, in July of 1756, and he's promptly placed under arrest. Um, and he's furious, um, of course, as he would be. Um, and uh, about a couple of weeks later, he's transported from Portsmouth uh, and will spend time at the uh, at Greenwich at the Queen Anne's Hospital, uh, which, which you can go to right now and take a look at. It's a pretty cool building. Um, but yeah, uh, there's a trial that begins um, in late December. It lasts for gosh six or seven weeks, which is way unusual. Um, in between, there's this huge press war, um, newspapers firing calling the admiral uh, cowardly um, and didn't do his job. And basically everything that's unmanly and un-British, well, you know, that's, that's John Bing. Um, and so he's really fighting for his life at this point in time. Um, and so what I wanted to know is what, culturally was going on um, in England, what socially was going on in England. All these things are feeding into the, the minds of the politicians that went to condemn John Bing. Um, and so for this, we have to look at who the prime minister was, who the king was, um, who the exchequer was, um, and who the head of the admiralty was and why maybe they might have a beef with this particular admiral. And that's what fascinated me, all these things that are feeding into them that they decided to make the decision that John Bing must take the fall for losing an island that was literally already taken. Um, so that's, that's what this book is about. So many questions. I'm really excited to, to get your book. Um, but I'm going to ask them anyway, and I suppose spoil the book for me. Um, so what, gosh, is there any strategic value to this island? Like 15,000 troops for an island in the Mediterranean, to me, strikes me as, as a lot. Well, um, I'm going to use the words of Adam Smith, um, who um, wrote um, Wealth of Nations, of course, and in that book in 1756, he does talk about Menorca and its value uh, to the British crown. Um, and I think he pretty much, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, hits the head on the nail. It's a very expensive island. It's folly. It's ridiculous. Why are we even there? Um, the whole purpose of the island was basically... It belonged to the crown. It, it, the funds for its maintenance comes from the king. Um, well, and of course, then parliament. Um, but it's the crown that used it basically as a diplomatic tool to keep an eye on Southern Europe, uh, to keep an eye on Barbary pirates, and to keep an eye on the trade to the Levant, um, and to, um, you know, ensure that everybody in Southern Europe knows that Britain is serious about its Mediterranean trade. That's its sole 100% purpose. It was never used by any of the trading companies, which is remarkable to me. Yeah. Um, it was supposed to be, but it, it just became 
100% British Navy port, um, period. It's a place where the British Navy could resupply itself. And that was it. Huh. So, I mean, monetarily, uh, economically, trade-wise, it meant very little. Yeah. For diplomacy, it meant a lot. Yeah. Um, So it was mostly the pride of the monarch, Mm -hmm. who at this time is George II. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the, the kicker is it's John Bing's father, George Bing, who turned that Port Mahon into a Navy facility mm-hmm. um, and basically gifted it to George the first. Mm-hmm. Well, it's George the <laughs> second. And now he's the son of the King. And here we have George Bing's son, John Bing, who was sent to save this Island. And um, there's a contentious relationship there between the monarch and Admiral. Yeah. yeah. So when he, when he sails through Gibraltar, and and is denied reinforcements by guys that, if I understood you correctly, were still were still on the ship with him. Correct? Like they once they left, they they sailed with him. <laughs> so didn't he? Didn't he realize that, that he's kind of sailing into um, far less than ideal circumstances? Oh yes. Um, so when he the, the whole the whole scheme is hilarious. Yeah. Um, he um, he receives orders in early March to put together a fleet. So he leaves London, he heads down to Portsmouth, um, and there's some letters from the Admiralty. They're new orders. And when he opens up the letter, the new orders are, yeah, you're to put together a fleet, but not your fleet. Um, you Actually, we have another fleet that we want you to put together. Um, so he's like, um, scratching his head. Um, he's been given 10 ships. Six of them are only there. There's another four that haven't even arrived. Um, All of them are in disrepair, and they're being repaired. One's in dry dock, and then when one ship does arrive, um, the mast fell. Um, uh, Through storms, it was battered. One is sinking. The Intrepid needs 24-7 pumping, two men pumping water out of it all the time. Um, So he has a really bad fleet He's not allowed to, to really repair it to the extent that he wanted. And they're saying, hurry up, get out, go, go back to the Mediterranean, hurry, hurry, hurry. But, oh, by the way, don't repair your ships. Don't put men on them. We're going to tell you where these men are going. Um, and they even give him orders, okay, you can leave now, um, April 1st by this time. Um, and we'll send more men, and they will catch up with you as you're en route, um, which was actually not atypical. I mean, mm-hmm. it happened a lot, particularly during wartime. Um, so he shrugs his shoulders. Okay, okay, I'll go. Um, but he knows he has – here's the kicker. He knows he has bad ships. He knows he is short of men. But so do the Spanish, so mm-hmm. do the Portuguese, so do the French, so does pretty much everybody. There's spies everywhere. So um, there's really no great fear from the French um, that the British are on their way. We better watch out. Um, there is, however, a, an acknowledgement that John Bing's nickname is Mediterranean Bing. He knows the Mediterranean inside and out. He was there during the War of Austrian Secession. Um, He did a a pretty admirable job at the latter part of that war. And, you know, he has a reputation as uh, as a Bing. And uh, it meant something uh, to the French that they had to face this guy. Um, But with sickly men, uh, short men, suspect ships... The French had a brand new fleet, brand new ships, mm-hmm. all of them, 12, 13. Um, John Bing comes with 10, mm-hmm. plus a couple of warships that were already in the Mediterranean. That was it. There was only like three warships in the entire Mediterranean when the war broke out. Um, so it's not like the Mediterranean theater was super, super important yeah. to, to the British high command. If it was, there would have been more ships. Yeah. And there were many, many newspapers and pamphlets that pointed that out. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I'm kind of in a tight spot because I want to ask more, but I don't want you to spoil too much of the book, um, either for, for listeners who may be interested in, in picking it up or certainly for myself. So I guess what I want to ask before we talk about your next project, um, so you had mentioned that the Bings were and and still are um, a, a sort of important family in Britain, yeah. right? So how was this received by by the rest of them? Um, you know, one of the first things I did when I arrived in England, I, I went to the University of Bristol. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had kind of a West England perch to look at Portsmouth, look at London, and look at the rest of the country. Um, and so one of the first things I did when I arrived was try to figure out where are the Bings now, who yeah. are they, and where do they live, and what do they think about what's happened. Um, and I called the church where John Bing was buried mm-hmm. um, and was able to talk to Reverend Ann. Oh, what's Ann's last name? I can't remember. Uh, she doesn't work there anymore. But um, she contacted a, a Bing who then contacted me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I came to find out that what the Bings are doing is actually fighting for exoneration of the Admiral. Um, that he was wrongly accused, that it was um, politics and nothing more, mm-hmm. um, and he deserves an exoneration. And they actually petitioned uh, Parliament, who demurred uh, and said, this is a problem for the Defense Department, and the Defense Department said, no, we're not going to look into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that had been going on when I first arrived uh, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still fighting for exoneration through something called the Admiral Bing Committee, mm-hmm. uh, the ABC. Um, and they've been helpful in having me contact, um, let's say, uh, the current Viscount of Torrington, uh, Tim Torrington, uh, the 18th Earl of Lauderdale, um, being able to try and trace some of the... Um, uh, I, I guess archival where things could have gone. Yeah. But the sad part about it all is uh, there were probably, there were being keyword, probably a lot of Bing papers, um, but there was a fire mm. at the archive that held them, which is Rudham Park uh, up near Hyde Barnett, just outside of London. And uh, that fire probably destroyed um, much of the Bing documentation. Um, so we really don't know who John Bing is other yep. than what he wrote to the Admiralty and what the Admiralty kept. Um, we know who his sister is because his sister wrote uh, a, a lot. Mm-hmm. And that was helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are still survivors from that lineage. And I, th- I think they're all thankful for the book and I, and I think there's some that might go oh a yank is coming here writing about this <laughs> uh, but I, I think the the story is so universal that um, I can be excused for poking my nose into it <laughs> yeah I, I have no doubt um, so what's what's next for you what are you working on after, after all this all, all this time and energy into Admiral Bing what's what's next? Well, the Admiral Bing book was a micro history, and um, I did attempt to radiate it outwards. Uh, in other words, to connect it to other things um, and to connect it to um, the longer strands of, of history, the long durée, as they say. Um, so, the next book I want to take on um, will return to the long durée and I'll depart from micro history for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, by the way, I do not recommend anybody to do micro history unless you're absolutely insane. Uh, oh, come so I had, well, I had to become a specialist in all sorts of things. So cultural history was my, my main love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew absolutely, well, I shouldn't say absolutely nothing. I knew very little about, um, British society in the middle of the 18th century. Um, And so I had to learn 
social history. Mm-hmm. And I had to go through the, you know, the, the Marxist schools, the Warwick schools, uh, you know, and all that to get to a point where I can go, um, <laughs> and, um, and I'm not a political historian by any stretch of the words either. So I had to learn um, a lot about British politics and history and how all of that worked. Um, so in my book, I'm looking at religion as well, because there's, there's a story here about religion and politics in the middle of the 18th century that's just absolutely fascinating. Um, and so, you know, I got sucked into that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, a little from column B, no, a lot from column B, and a lot from column C, and a lot from column D, and I had to put it all together to, you know, re- represent a history that's really enmeshed and all put together and in a very small amount of time mm-hmm. you know to mm-hmm. give a glimpse of what people were thinking mm-hmm. and how they were going forward it's really hard mm-hmm. um and i think i i believe i succeeded and i hope people who review the book and, and get a lot out of it will say wow had no idea mm-hmm. um so that's what i'm hoping for from that now i'm gonna put that aside okay and, and go a little easier on me this time around uh, I'm working on something called the working title is uh, Defoe, Crusoe, and the Anthropocene. Um, and basically, what I'm looking at is Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, which was published over 300 years ago in the year 1719, um, about a supposedly a shipwrecked. Um, mariner for 26 years in isolation on an island in the Caribbean um, before he's rescued. What fascinates me about the story um, is the way that Defoe wrote it. Um, And William Defoe is probably, it's like Bunyan's book. It's It's a religious tract. It's filled with religiosity. It's a Puritan religious book. And it's this Puritan outlook on life that saves the mental anguish of this stranded sailor um, who then takes this island, an island, by the way, that gives him everything he could ever want, um, fruit and food and fish and fowl, and nonetheless despite this island giving him everything he could possibly need, he remakes the island in his own image. I mean, he totally remakes it. He makes enclosures, he makes fences, he um, moves earth, he uh, grows barley in the Caribbean. What? Uh, <laughs> and he does all these things to make sure that once he's rescued, everybody knows the island is his. Um, and so this got me to thinking about how landscapes were changed in the Caribbean, how man has remade what nature has given. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we're dealing with uh, the Anthropocene, which in some ways the telling of the earth being remade and reshaped, taken away from nature and made, well, man-made in in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I'm trying to do is look at this book over 300 years ago Mm -hmm. and trying to connect it to why is it that people refuse to understand that our climate is changing and for the worse and that mankind had something to do with it. So I'm looking at the alterations of not just landscapes, but how economics were changing at the time, Um, how the rise of capitalism or some will want to call it proto-capitalism call it what you want it was capitalism 101 and in fact when this character crusoe is crash landed on this caribbean island he was on a mission he was leaving his brazilian and that's another story he was leaving brazil his plantation that was given to him um and he was on a mission to go to africa to pick up human slaves to bring back to work on his plantation. That's when he crash landed on, on this particular Caribbean Island. So we know that he's writing about this 18th century economy. 
um, this rapacious need for um, labor. Um, and I, I'm just fascinated by the connections between um, that culture in the early 18th century and our culture today. There's no doubt in my mind uh, during Defoe's time that that book was reprinted seven times. Uh, by the end of the 18th century, um, you know, some 70 years later, Daniel Defoe is some sort of, you know, by Whiggish historians, he's some sort of god. And, um, you know, this story about this mariner who's alone for 26 years uh, is everything about British manliness and British religiosity. And, and you know, that, that transformation of the island from nature to man-made is like over them. But it's a bedtime story by this time. And it's a bedtime story that um, men of good means, men and women of great means are reading to their kids who will go on to become men of great men and means. And so it's, it's just embedded in Western culture mm -hmm. that we have this story of um, Robinson Crusoe um, and the ability of humans to overcome their plight, uh, and this is this is this is what I want to connect and and kind of take a look at the changing landscapes and the changing economics between that book and now, uh, and saying it's hard to get rid of this culturally. Um, we we have to rethink it, and it's going to take another bedtime story, I think, to to redo it. But, but yeah, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, I, I had a conversation on here. Gosh, this is going to betray the release schedule of the podcast, I suppose. Uh, a few weeks ago, if, if we're releasing these chronologically, um, <laughs> about how uh, the idea of, of viewing the Earth purely in terms of resource extraction for the overwhelming majority of people in the world is, at least in the United States, I should say, um, is is so foolish <laughs> um, to put it very politely, right? Um, given given the circumstances that we're in, and and we're recording this at, at a period when uh, the East Coast uh, um, is recovering from a, a cyber attack on a gas pipeline, and people are filling up uh, garbage bags full of gasoline, um, which is. is Man, I try not to judge, but that's really not the brightest move. Um, and and so yeah, like to to connect um, some of the like stubborn pigheadedness that has has gotten us to this uh, disaster that we're in um, to to this cultural, you know, like you said, it's a a bedtime story at its at its, at its peak um, is is really interesting. You know, and thinking about like I've been reading um, the uh, a book called um, Oh gosh, the Indigenous People's History of America. I think yeah. I'm yeah, and so like reflecting on that right and the idea that you know the the British um, colonists viewing North America is this is untapped resource um, and perpetuating like all of the lies about um, the First Nations as, like, irresponsible caretakers of the land, when in reality there was, you know, miles and miles and miles of, of not only roads, but established trade routes and, and very carefully cultivated um... Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what I'm looking for. Like, just, just like, a very intentional use of, of the land. Um, it's heartbreaking. I mean, for a, a billion different reasons. Right. Right. And couching the story in that in that context is got to be frustrating <laughs> to write about. I I would imagine. Oh, uh, there's just so much to write about and so little time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a, a another historian that kind of inspired me on this route. Uh, Jason Kelly, uh, he's another British historian, um, and he dove deep into the Anthropocene. Um, and, and I think for the same reasons that that I'm following Defoe and Robinson Crusoe, um, it's just the utter gall <laughs> of the British Empire uh, and and the pink everywhere on the wall maps. Uh, just it's remarkable, and it's still with us. The, the 
the climate, you know, the climate change deniers, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and, and they fight it tooth and nail. And I'm just trying to understand that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's where the book is coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's pivot now and, t- and talk a little bit about your, your ability or your successes at bringing some of your research interests into the classroom. Um, I have to imagine, I mean, you're, you're an incredible storyteller, uh, students must uh, walk into class not knowing that they they cared at all about John Bing and Robinson Crusoe and and walk out <laughs> uh, uh, converted to the cause. <laughs> um, you know, it's difficult to bring a story um, um, like John Bing. Uh, um, I teach at community college, so um, mostly what I'm left with are survey courses. Um, and every now and then I get to do a course that's a little bit, um, you know, multicultural history. I get to do that. Um, I'm teaching the political history of the Middle East uh, next semester. Um, but, you know, to bring uh, a story like Bing into it, I have to tell students, no matter what you're reading, no matter what you're trying to understand, the it's, the hardest thing that historians have to do is, is to sit back and to think about the bigger picture of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so usually I start um, a U.S. history survey class of, of uh, the United States from colonial times to about the Civil War. And I started with a 1738 South Carolina Gazette newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, where an anonymous writer is writing to the editor of the paper, whose name is Mr. Timothy. Um, and Timothy prints the letter. And basically what this guy is, is asking is, we should really stop the importation of uh, slaves from the Caribbean at this time. I don't know what those people in Bristol are thinking about. I don't know why the financiers in London are even financing this. And as we read the letter, um, we have to start to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's in these primary materials that we read that questions should be coming up. And this is your opportunity to talk to the dead Mm -hmm. and figure out where they're coming from. and then it's your insatiable appetite for knowing why um, these things happen that we learn in this one letter to the South Carolina Gazette that people were taking out loans to purchase slaves from London and Bristol banks. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this huge triangle of trade. Yeah, that's great. But you don't realize that there's prices on this, that the, that the South Carolina commodity is rice and that rice requires labor and that South Carolina was picky and the only labor that they wanted had to come from somewhere in the Caribbean, not directly from Africa, because they wanted seasoned humans uh, that knew some uh, knew how to grow rice that were already accustomed to mosquitoes and yellow fever and that could survive the harsh work of doing rice by hand. Not only that, but that they were mortgaging themselves to purchase these humans. And not only that, but that the other parts of the globe were growing rice as well. And the price of this commodity was dropping while the price of human labor was rising. And can we start to see the problems here? And that the solution in this letter was to ban slavery for three years. And it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Why? And so we, we start to, paint the picture and we start to put it together. But this, this one document raises all sorts of questions and we have to sit back and go, is this really a story about someone crying about his debt load because he does grow rice and he's not making enough money? But what's the bigger story? What's the bigger picture? What else is going on? And that to me is fascinating as students sit in the classroom, discuss the document and talk about what 
possibly could be motivating people to still participate in incurring debt while they participate in one of the most brutal slave trades known to mankind. Um, to me, it's just a fascinating conversation to have. So I insist that students pay attention to the primaries. I don't have textbooks in my class because they're kind of shallow and then they teach you a, a whole, uh, very little about a whole lot and without any depth. Um, so sometimes we just sit with the primaries and then we begin our research. And it doesn't have to be spectacular research at this level, but I need them to connect what people were thinking in the past to what they did in the past. Because those two are connected. And then connect themselves to the past. How do you make sense of this? And then what's going on today that the past says, you know, are we still having labor problems in this country? Uh, are we still need cheap labor? Um, you know, is it in the news anytime? Are you a, a slave wage earner at McDonald's? Um, let's talk about what Amazon wants you to do and how many cups you need to pee in. Um, this isn't too far removed um, from what was occurring in the 1730s to what's occurring today in the 2020s. I just want to say I really appreciate that you you frame it to your students as it being their opportunity to talk to the dead. Um, I over the last few years I have um, I feel like I talk about this too much on my own podcast, but I've I've really developed a, a passion for historical criminology and um, uh, sociology of revolutions. But but the the criminology thing it just started kind of as a, a tour through major cases, right? And like what were the policy implications and and things like that. And I, I started to develop this really deep like sense of responsibility <laughs> to um, people whose, whose lives had and legacies really had been reduced to, uh, you know, a, a sort of popular um, true crime kind of novel. And so I walked in, I, I developed a class on, on, on it. Um, I walked in the first day and was like, I have a confession for you. I talked to ghosts <laughs> and the students were like, what happened to you over the summer? <laughs> but I think it's such a it's such a great way to to to, um, to frame it, right? Right. Um, um, and also, of course, to get get students' attention <laughs> out, of, out of the get go. Um, and you know, sometimes in, in, when they ask questions later on in the document, the dead answer their questions, you know, <laughs> um, which is which is fun to see. Um, and when the questions are left unanswered, that's when you got to kind of pull back and, and really just think about what's going on. Um, students react to um, history in a very kind of a funny way and, and different ways. They get very passionate about it sometimes. Um, I, I know that uh, I have projects. Um, well, pre-COVID, I had projects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where uh, you know, I, I borrowed heavily from uh, from from the universities in in England, having been a PGR student over there, um, postgraduate student, um, and seeing how they teach their students, and, and I brought some of that back with me um, in trying to make students aware that what they think has value and how they perceive the world has some sense of of meaning, um, and and to work on that. Um, and then going to Bristol, which was at one point the leading city in all of England, uh, in all of Great Britain, uh, in the slave trade, um, it was headquartered, it was number one, even outselling London, um, its merchants were rapacious. Um, so there's a lot of history in Bristol that I learned that I wasn't supposed to, but I learned anyway. Um, and it, we began a project where students, okay, I have a list here of Bristol merchants uh, from the 18th century um, who participated in the slave trade once the UK decided that they didn't want to have a monopoly called the Royal African Company do it. And then they opened it up to merchant societies in five cities, of which Bristol was one. And so a society was, uh, you know, a number of 
hundreds of merchants who just like, yes, let us go get slaves. Um, and then participated in it. And, you know, um, who are these guys and why are none of them on Wikipedia? Um, and so we began a project of actually researching who these people were, um, how they got into the business, what they did while they were in the business and how much money they made in the business and then how much money they passed on to their heirs. If we're going to talk about reparations, um, aren't these families that, you know, that's the great thing about England is they kept a lot of records. Um, we know who these people are and we know how much money they made because these were investments. People invested in these ships. They bought shares uh, among these merchants and they shared the wealth when, when the money came back and the trips were complete. So aren't they responsible? Because some of them go on, their heirs go on to become members of parliament. Some of them go on to be knights. Some of them even get elevated to peerage um, and all on the backbone of this particular uh, transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. you, you look at a, a guy like Isaac Hobhouse, 19,000 uh, 19, people are taken from Africa aboard his ships. You know, one guy. Um, over a period of, of 20 years, you don't, when you say 12 million were transported, that's a number that just goes over your head. It's just a statistic. But when you say it's one guy who's responsible uh, for the removal of 19,000 humans from their homes, from their lives, from their families, transported overseas and deposited in the Caribbean and in the southern U.S., it becomes a little bit more real, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so I love projects like these and, and having students research, having students do podcasts, for example. Uh, I have them do that. Um, so to, to make them understand that history has a value, it has a way of explaining where you are today. It's very personal. It's where you are. How do you fit in? Mm -hmm. um, you have a rudder now. Um, that's what history gives you. And how are you going to steer whatever is coming your way? I think that's the value of history, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I, I think that that figure, those figures you just gave us, um, right? That that is a good demonstration of what you mentioned before about how a lot of textbooks. Um, teach you a little about a lot right and for for lots of lots of folks like me right who who's uh at least public education about about the the slave trade um did focus on that, that 12 million number um and didn't really ever get into the nuts and bolts of it i, I think that demonstrating um examples like that of, of one person being responsible for for the um abduction and removal of nineteen thousand people um somehow that nineteen thousand feels so much bigger than 12 million in that, in that instance. Right. Absolutely. Um, the introduction to my book um, on John Bing's execution begins with um, John Wesley. Mm -hmm. and, uh, John Wesley is very famous for um, not only the beginner of the Methodist Methodism in the Methodist church, um, but he was one of the early abolitionists that uh, questioned um, slavery. Um, but anyway, he's in the Bing story because uh, he, uh, he meets a soldier who was on Menorca in when that uh, garrison was under siege by 15,000 French troops. And uh, basically, he's listening to the soldier tell him um, the horrible leadership of the army at the time and how many things they did, they did wrong. Uh, and it just lists one after the other. Um, and it was a meeting that happened early in the morning. And then John uh, Wesley goes throughout his day and he travels and then he has lunch and then he has dinner. And then at the end of the day is when he sits down and writes this. So it's mm -hmm. late at night under a lantern. And all he can think about is his six o'clock morning visit with this one soldier who was there. Mm -hmm. And his... Um, 
his reaction at the end is, my God, one great man is shot, another made a lord. Um, and so the great man that was shot was John Bing, and the one that was made a lord was the 80-year-old general that was in charge of the garrison who did a horrible job. Um, and, you know, it's just, I, I don't know, I just find it fascinating how interconnected everything is in the past, and I didn't want to lose that. Yeah. in this particular book. And that's why I wrote it as a micro history um, was to, to, to keep all the threads together and not let the reader lose all the tiny threads and to carry the, the book is in three parts, that cultural history, the, the way people read, the way people think, uh, the way people learn about events, um, the way people uh, approach news and stories and then how religion plays into that um and then from there we can move on to society um and then the social breakdown of england in the middle of the 18th century and i can look at the uh the food riots that were going on the moment john Bing is in is in prison and his trial is going on and i can look at the impressment riots that are going on at the same time that John Bing is in prison and is going to trial. Uh, and then I can look at the so-called Bing riots that really weren't riots at all, uh, but were staged street theater. And when we can compare all of these riots, um, you know, and, and make conclusions about the politics which is the last section of the book mm-hmm. and why some of these politicians made the decisions that they did. It's mostly to save their own necks. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. No doubt. Yeah. One of the uh, things that was, was the most exciting for me as I was building that class I was telling you about was, was like reading these sort of crime histories and then just making those connections across different pieces, you know, um, somebody showing up in one book uh, who was a, a bit player in another, in another story and just being like, they were contemporaries of each other. Like, of course they would be in the same social circles, but just feeling like, like my brain actually <laughs> like making those connections was, was pretty cool. Um, made me, made me wish that I, I uh, sometimes, sometimes wish I would have gone for a PhD in history instead of, sociology for for that very reason i i love my sociologist don't get me wrong um and that was one thing i had to do in the book i do want to get this across is there was a point in the book where history didn't answer my questions mm-hmm. and i had to turn to uh cultural anthropology to find the answers that i was looking for mm-hmm. um because in the middle of the 18th century the things that got saved the letters that got saved um, didn't belong to the people who were protesting in this book. Um, so if there was a food riot, um, the people who would write about the food riots were people who were very well-to-do, mm-hmm. uh, or the generals or captains that went out to put them down. Um, but you don't see anything from the people who are starving um, being written about the system, right? Um, and the same thing in... Um, when it came to riots against being, you know, impressed or, or put into service by the Royal Navy. Yeah, you're a free man today, but you're in the Navy now. Wait a minute, I got a family. No, no, no. Conk you over the head, take you, take you away. Um, we read a lot about that from high up, but we don't read it from below. Um, and, and then the same thing with the Bing protest. Um, you know, something fishy here. And, and these Bing protests look a lot like what happened in uh, the Thomas Paine burnings in London in 1792, because Thomas Paine, yeah, famous for writing Common Sense in 1776, uh, also wrote a book about the rights of man uh, when it came to the French Revolution. And, um, you know, the higher-ups in the UK didn't like that book. Uh, and so, you know, they began to have Thomas Paine burnings throughout London. And the way that those were conducted looked a lot like the way that the anti-John Bing burnings and effigy kicking arounds were kind of done and conducted. So I wanted to figure out, well, what's really going on here? I don't have anything from history that tells me this. So I had to turn, make a turn toward cultural anthropology uh, and again, microhistory forced me to do this. Uh, 
to, 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 to learn about how cultural anthropology works and are there any universal stories here um, that can, you know, kind of tell me how people act when they're faced with uh, situations that are being, you know, that, that are hard and difficult and there's no food and they're losing their liberties and there's war and we might lose and, you know, all the social anxiety and here you're given this opportunity to, Hey, let's have a party. Let's beat up this Bing effigy. By the way, here's a can, here's some ale. Just tell me how much you hate John Bing. Oh, I hate him a lot. Yeah. Here's, here's your ale. You know, uh, uh, these weren't protests. They were places where you could learn how to hate I suppose, you know, for lack of a better word. Um, I want to also let you know, in the conclusion of my book, I, I use the second president of the United States, John Adams, um, because during the French Revolution, he was in Paris, and he wrote a letter back home to his wife, Abigail. And uh, he wrote, hey, there's this other British admiral who fought this battle and it didn't go well, and they're going to bingify him. Um, so here we're using John Bing as a verb. It was a huge story. Yeah. Uh, and it was on both sides of the Atlantic. Wow. And John Bing, uh, his demise, his execution, had a huge impact on colonial Americans. Um, because what they saw in his execution was, man, Britain is so corrupt, they're even shooting their own elites, um, you know, be, you know in, in, in a way, I look at what's happening with Liz Cheney, right? I mean, you know, she's getting chewed and beat up alive by the very people that her father helped make, you know, um, politics is weird, you know, and that that's why this matters. Um, and just, just had to get that out there. Oh yeah. No, I think there's a, there's a ton of, of, um, contemporary parallels to what you're talking about. Right. Um, you know, the, the first one that comes to mind is, is a recent interview with the, uh, I believe it was the CEO or the CFO of, of WeWork, which is a company that rents office buildings, about how, of course, people want to come back to work in the office and only lazy people want to continue working from home in pandemic schmandemic. But like nobody's interviewing me who's been in, in quarantine for, uh, what, 15 months uh, taking care of my kids and <laughs> sacrificing all this time in my career as so many other academics have. And, and outside of the academy, obviously, um, many, many, many more people um, uh, have, have stories like that. But let's talk, to, let's talk to the company that leases office space about how <laughs> people want to go back to work. Like, give me a break. <laughs> let's talk to the CEOs of, of, of the different, you know, restaurants about, you know, people don't want to work because of, of the bailout and, and unemployment. Not that we're paying them $2.25 an hour. Pshaw. <laughs> Yeah, don't 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 change those tip wages. My gosh. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> yeah. Um, so Joe, I've taken up a lot of your time this afternoon. Um I do want to give you the chance and I I feel like we've we've already kind of done this um throughout our conversation. Um but is there is there anything that you want anybody who, who might find this interview um to, to take away from your work? I think the thing that I I want them to know is how universal history is. And um, there's a story here that resonates with me because I, I suppose we've all been um, targeted for things that we didn't do. <laughs> um, there's a story here of British nationalism. And, uh, you know, as this country and Britain and France and, and others are grappling with the rise of neo-nationalists, I think this story has a very uh, compelling lesson uh, to learn. Uh, if you go down these dark roads um, and revisit them in a very real sense, in real time, um, people are going to take the fall and, and some of those people are, are, are as innocent as I think John Bing was. 
Um, so, you know, we need to be careful and wary kind of where we go. Uh, and I think this story is more important now than ever. Yeah, no. Uh, again, you know, relating it to academia, I can't imagine <laughs> that anybody in, in the academy would have their, their careers sabotaged and their work <laughs> their work destroyed over things that they never did. It's just crazy to think about that. Right. <laughs> so, um, on that, uh, I want to thank you uh, again for taking time out of your day. Um, Andy, I want to thank you. you. You've been amazing. You're a great host. Wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show um, as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us um, positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So if you are untenured, and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, um, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at UntenuredTracks or me at HeyDrWill. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.